So this uh, scripture lesson comes from the first book of Chronicles, chapter 29. What's going on here is that David is nearing the end of a 40-year reign on the throne of Israel, and he decides he wants to build God a new temple. But God says no. So here's what happens. King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is very great, for the temple will not be for mortals, but for the Lord God. Therefore, I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, and the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood. Thus David, son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. He reigned over Israel for 40 years. He died in a good old age, full of days, honor, and riches. And his son Solomon succeeded him. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord, succeeding his father David as king. He prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel, and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as, as has not been seen in Israel before. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this fall at Kenilworth Union, I've been preaching the sermon series called Stewardship Cubed, or Stewardship to the Third Power. And my point, of course, is that God entrusts every last Kenilworth Union member with the good care of three good things, our faith family, our neighbor, and our home. We take care of our faith family through the annual operating budget, our neighbor through the outreach budget, and our home, our physical plant, through the capital campaign. And I've been saying that if we're faithful to this triple office of stewardship, our impact will increase not arithmetically, but exponentially. And it doesn't take a PhD in theology to notice that I'm taking these th three things in descending order of importance. That is to say, if you can choose only one of them to help us with this year, we hope that you will choose the annual operating budget as you do every year, because if too many families shrink their operating pledge in order to make a capital pledge, all three of them disappear. Can't do that. We're hoping for 600 pledges to our operating budget this year. The number of pledges to our capital campaign will be fewer, and that's as it should be. In fact, there are at least two reasons not to give to a capital campaign, right? First of all, many uh, faithful parishioners realize that a parish's priorities ought to be people, not piles. One wealthy parishioner at a Manhattan congregation in a challenged neighborhood with many needs wanted to donate a giant carillon to the church. But the senior minister said, no, thank you. We have to feed the hungry. She was right. Nevertheless, the prosperous parishioner won, and now there's this huge carillon towering over the soup kitchen and the food pantry. So I love it when a thoughtful philanthropist comes to me and says, I always pledge to programs, not to piles. Pope Gregory the Great said that the real altar of God is in the hearts and minds of the just. Yes, 
The real altar of God is not there. It's out there in the hearts and minds of the just. So that's a good reason not to give to a capital. There's another good reason. Why would anybody, why would a church spend money to build a building when increasingly its central ministry is virtual, not physical? It's a good question. One wise church consulted noticed that many of the troops have left during the pandemic and they're not coming back. And so that our virtual attendance will outnumber our physical attendance. That is to say, more people will stream than will show up. This guy says that before the pandemic, a church was a building that happened to have an online presence. After the pandemic and for the foreseeable future, churches are websites that happen to have a building. Good point. And so there's always been this ambivalence about bricks and mortar in the history of the synagogue and the church going back a thousand years before Jesus. That story I read about King David a moment ago. You realize what's happening, right? David has just turned 70 years old. He's included a spectacularly successful 40-year reign in Israel. Get that, 40 years. And he's done almost everything he wanted to do. He's dispatched Israel's enemies. He has turned a tiny speck of real estate, the size and shape of Vermont, stuck like a dagger into the heart of the Middle East, into the world's reigning superpower. He has married hundreds of women, fathered whole nursery schools full of children, and built himself a magnificent cedar-paneled palace that will make Winnetka's mansions look like subsidized housing. And then David looks around and notices that God, God's self, is still living in a tent. A tent, for God's sake. The tabernacle that sheltered God's presence when the Hebrews left Egypt, wandered in the desert, and then entered the promised land. So David announces his intention that he's going to build this magnificent house for the Lord. But here's where the story gets interesting. God says, no thank you. No thank you, David. No offense. It's the thought that counts. But I don't want a house. My tent's just fine with me. Still, David tells Israel that he's going to make this offering. He's going to collect this money so that his son Solomon will complete the task. And you know the rest of the story. David dies old and full of days. His son Solomon succeeds him on the throne of Israel. And Solomon goes on to build God a house. The temple in Jerusalem, which was the envy of the ancient world and still lives in the longing of every faithful Jew. 2,000 years after it was destroyed, it still lives in the longing of every faithful Jew. She aches for its restoration. So there's this ambivalence about bricks and mortar going back to the beginning of the Jewish and the Christian story. However, I bet you saw that coming. However, think of all they mean to us. These sanctuaries that are among the most beloved and beautiful structures ever imagined by the human mind or hammered together with human hands. Churches, said one architectural scholar, are standing in opposition to the flattening and narrowing of human experience. 
they stand in opposition against this deviation into the trivial. You see what she means, right? That when we come to a place like this, we are opposing the flattening and narrowing of human experience, that deviation into the trivial, so that our eyes can go upward to where God lives. Doesn't it happen to you every time you enter this sanctuary? Your spirit unfurls. It unfolds. Your eye reaches up to where God lives. Sometimes God even comes close I don't think it's too much to say that without our churches, our cities would be too flat, boring, and two-dimensional to endure. Someone said that a church building is not only a place to worship God in, but a place to, to worship God with. Yes? A church is a building not only to worship in, but to worship with. And so I love our Twin Spires. Because one arrow pointing to where God lives is not enough. This is the most numinous and resplendent place I ever get to spend time in. I love my house, but it doesn't look like this, nor should it. Joseph Sears donated the real estate on which we sit so that his village could have a multi-denominational congregation. And then the first parishioners decided to build the first chapel for $6,100. And then they furnished this whole place for $900 more, including the organ. But this was 130 years ago when that kind of money was real money and they sacrificed. And now 130 years later, it is not worthy for us to rest into complacency and to let their lavish legacy go dormant. My Grand Rapids church had this beloved business manager, very shrewd, worked there for like 30 years, good friend of mine, his name was Dan. Dan had a philosophy that every congregation ought to tackle a capital campaign once every 10 years. And then you raise a modest amount of money and you keep up, right? So one decade, you refurbish the Christian education wing, and the next decade, you tackle the sanctuary, and the decade after that, the fellowship hall, and so on and so forth. And then this deferred maintenance doesn't pile up on you. That was Dan's philosophy. We haven't had that particular care for our spiritual home in the last 30 years like that. But that's okay. Y'all have been generous in other ways by taking care of your faith family through the operating budget and your neighbor through the outreach budget. But now it is time to catch up. If your house were as neglected as our man's is today, you would never invite me over. No exaggeration. If not us, who? If not now, when? I turned 65 in August. And I love being your senior minister, and I hope to be doing this for the foreseeable future. If God is willing, the creek don't rise, and you all agree. But you can do the math. I'm not going to be doing this when I'm 70. My successor will replace me. It's on the horizon. And so I want to tell you a little secret. Actually, I don't think it's too secret. Ministers hate capital campaigns, right? They don't want to raise this extra money. They don't mind raising money for the operating budget. That's standard operating procedure, but not a capital campaign, right? 
They want to preach the gospel and baptize the babies and marry the lovers and visit the sick and bury the saints. Every capital campaign is difficult, fraught, and controversial. After every capital campaign, at least five members will leave mad because they don't agree with the spending priorities. This is true in every place, at every time, with every congregation. And so please let me do this with you and for you so that my successor won't have to. New people can't do capital campaigns. right? You need a, a fund of relational resources to call upon to ask people for a pile of money. Only people who have been here for a while can do this. And so if we get this done, then you can go out and find yourself a rock star of a preacher who's way better than me, and she'll come and serve you because she'll see how much you love your spiritual home. And she'll see that she won't have to worry about that. All she'll have to do is preach the gospel. Have you ever noticed that a beloved church edifice is a sermon in stone? A thoughtful church building preaches the gospel 24-7, 365, night and day, spring, summer, winter, and fall. It never quits. It keeps looming over the streetscape, preaching the good news of our glad God. And evil people who don't believe in God cannot miss its indisputable manifesto about the sovereignty of God, the regency of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Preach the gospel always, said St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. So thank you for helping us with this eloquent sermon in stone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.